Welcome back to the Urantia Radio Podcast. Jim Watkins, your host, a uh, reader for a long time and still yet a student. And I'm here. Uh, we got a good, good podcast episode for you. I'm actually inspired by this one because I just recently came across, you know, something uniquely fresh about the Urantia book and about what we're, what we can do in our society and what we can do to carry the, the message forward. And uh, also, I, I was engaged in a sort of an email exchange with someone who wrote back. Can I pull that up? I, I, I can pull it up, and I think I will, just because it was such an interesting note. And it comes from a regular reader, and he uh, basically asked me, why do I refer to the Urantia book as the fifth epical revelation when there are lots of revelations? And we'll get to that. I want to answer that question with three or four things maybe in the Urantia book that I've come across over the years that I've been reading it that to me really prove beyond the shadow of a doubt or at least my own shadow of a doubt, which allows me to have intellectual integrity about it. Uh, and I'll share that with you as an answer to that wonderful email question, plus a Urantia book reader in Florida uh, has made an amazing suggestion, which we're all going to share. So we'll get to that here on the Urantia Radio Podcast. Well, it's the reason for the season. Bob Seger, and I always love that, not only that song itself, but, which I've heard a million times, but also the his interpretation, his, you know, singing interpretation of that, just a beautiful, beautiful rendition. And I think I love it because as a kid, you know, the idea of this little boy and these, these uh, kings coming to give him gifts, shower him with gifts, you know, as a little boy, you process things and you have no idea you know, why, why they're giving these gifts, except that this boy's pretty special. So that message really resonated with me. Then, of course, years later, when you find out, you know, why this boy was so special as, you know, which brings us together in this environment on the Arantia Radio podcast. And so I just, for the season, I hope that you're having a, a decent season this year. Uh, you know, we've been on a rocky road in a lot of different ways and uh, I don't see anything calming down anytime soon but all we can do is is try to follow the teachings and remain calm and cool and collected uh, and we do have a really good show for you I want to talk about a couple of things one is an email that I received from a listener who's a great listener who I love I've heard some of his music too and I won't uh, give his ID because he hasn't asked me 
or he hasn't said that I can't, but he brought up a good point. On this podcast, we refer to the Urantia book as the fifth epical revelation, or at least I do. And, uh, and he mentioned to me that there are other revelations, and he mentions among them A Course in Miracles, the OSPE Bible, O-A-H-S-P-E Bible, which I'm not familiar with, the writings of Emmanuel Swedenberg, the writings of Andrew Jackson Davis. All of these writings share some common threads with the Urantia book. It may be that revelations occur throughout human history. Perhaps they include the art and poetry of William Blake, the music of Beethoven, and others. So, boy, what a brilliant point that he makes, right? Because he is, you know, self-revelation, revelation that just comes through. As an example of that, if you heard the last podcast where we found the George Lucas tapes, just the way that he was explaining the force for his movie was in many ways revelatory because it, it took truth and, and made it easy to follow along. And, and we're told in the Urantia book that revelation occurs all the time. It's the spirit working in our, in our minds and trying to inject advanced ideas and spiritual thoughts and concepts. That's what the thought adjuster is constantly trying to do. And so the Spirit speaks to us and through us occasionally. So, yeah, technically there are revelations happening all the time. I get revelations all the time. I get revelations to uh, today. I'll share an interesting thing that just dropped into my life, which I think is such a smart, I never thought of it before. And we'll get to that also. But uh, anyway, thanks to the person, Michael. Thank you for sending the email. And you're right. But I will make this distinction as to why I refer to the Arantia book as the fifth epical revelation. And it's because I, I think it's consistent with its message, which is that this revelation is a demarcation. It's epical in the sense that it, it brings in new information that previously was unavailable uh, on a societal level, perhaps, uh, because it does come from the heavens. As Byron Boletso says, it, it is the, heaven's response perhaps even as byron has suggested to the uh to the collapse of some some parts of our civilization that are going on right now and maybe this is their way of saying we're, we're here to help you throwing us a lifeline or you know a flotation device so we can work our way through this materialistic age that we're going through so i call it the fifth epical revelation because it's from the same group that brought us the planetary prince, Adam and Eve, and of course, Melchizedek, and then Jesus, they all came from the revelators of spiritual source. No human source is involved in this. Everything that is in the Urantia book wasn't humanly influenced, as some people have, have said and even written about. William Sadler had no effect, and those are from his own testimony. He had no effect on any of uh, they they were they were barely allowed to do the table of contents. The revelators were very clear, at least in the in the histories of it, that nothing was to be changed except for typos, you know. Uh, and and that's what I understand that to be. If I called uh, the foundation and I said, "Did Sadler write the Orange Book?" They're going to say no. Did Chrissy have any influence? No. No, this book is an authentic, non-human source. Well, the, the sourcing comes from the latent 
conceptions that are that have existed in man's mind. So they're able to pull from mental transcripts of people who were great teachers, even all the way up to the contemporary age. So, and they they admittedly say whenever possible we drew from human sources, even in the account of Jesus, which was sponsored in part by. I believe it was the guardian angel of Andrew or someone of, of assignment to Andrew. And they culled from human sources. So, you know, Matthew Block might call that plagiarism, but they're admitting that, hey, we, we, we didn't source everybody we pulled, but be, let it be known that, you know, over a thousand human minds contributed to the knowledge base. And wherever we couldn't find an expression of something that we were teaching you, like words like Havona, like words like Marantia. Well, we have to, that's where the revelation part is. Concepts previously unknown. And so that's what makes this in the same emphasis as uh, the Son of Man and his bestowal 2,000 years ago, Adam and Eve and so forth. This is a, I don't even know if this word exists, but a demarcative a demarcation of time. You know, now we're in the Urantia book age. And, and that has to be something that's unique to our world because I don't recall a book being part of the process of revelation. Usually it comes in the form of a magisterial son or an avonal son or even a Melchizedek or an Adam and Eve. Normally you don't see it in book form, but perhaps because we're an experimental world, that was allowed to proceed. We certainly have a way with books. You know, we love our books here on Urantia. And so this is why there are other books. I haven't, I, I, I don't, I offer no opinion on Course of Miracles. I, I think I looked into it when I was young. It was interesting and it means nothing to anybody but me. But I, I consider the Course in Miracles as being the words of Christ, which I believe that's, the assertion, but uh, I just, for whatever reason, I, I felt the Course in Miracles was more for uh, personal growth, whereas I think the Arantia book is more of a of a history book of what has happened and why things have happened. I think it was Paula Thompson who said the Course in Miracles is the 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 what, and the Arantia book is the why. Uh, and I like the why because the why lets me evaluate. And where the Course in Miracles, it's more personal. So if those are the words of Christ echoed through whoever penned those, you know, follow your path. That's what I say. However, whatever it takes to get you there. You know, the uh, Dalai Lama said, there's a reason that potatoes grow better in the in the West and rice grows better in the East. You know, everybody has to find their own path. So that's my, but on that note, I want to just point out a couple of things about the validation of the Arantia book. So, you know, because this email challenges me now. So what are some of the things that made me believe that the Arantia book was authentic? Well, I, I kind of went into it with this always, when you read the Arantia book. And, and let me just preface it by saying, what is truth? What is authentically true? What is the scenario of the universe that is absolutely true? Is it, is it on autopilot? Is it antecedent causation? Is it natural as if natural means that there 
There was no first initial source to nudge it. It just came to be. It eventuated itself. Is that what life is? Where does it come from? Where does it go? Now, as a man of science, energy shows us the physical constraints or environment, matter, the physical laws come from this example of a universe. But we still don't know what moves it, and we don't know relative to each other what's the living energy that's moving through space. There's something that keeps it forward momentum. If you believe in the expansion theory, what's moving it outward? And does it contract? Your answer book says it's respiration. It's living energy, unqualified, absolute, and it's a, and it goes through a cycle. A, what is it, a billion-year cycle or something like that? And within that, there's a wheel of all these aggregate creations that, that spin around Havona and ultimately paradise. Now, is that possible? It could be possible. We don't see enough of the grand existence to know whether it is or not. But our scientists haven't gone that way. They've gone more with uh, creation coming from all different sources. Uh, but we've learned since the James Webb Telescope that this may not be consistent. And we've, got, we've discussed that in previous podcasts. But so back to the fundamental question, what, what is ab- absolutely true about the universe? So to tackle the subject of this, the statement in the Arantia book and what it makes are always scrutinized. You can't just take it at, you know, as just true just because it's in the book. You have to ask yourself, is it true? And if it's not verifiably true, is it potentially true? You know, does the statement work within what we know about motion and physics? Is it possible a statement made in this a book is verifiable? And if it's not verifiable, is it plausible? Does it violate the laws of physics? Because God, according to the Arantia book, doesn't violate his own laws. Uh, as a standard for me, if I'm being asked to accept something, even on faith, it still has to stand up to intellectual scrutiny. And uh, I don't want to bore you with this, but I, I want to be able at the end of my life to say that what I believed in was based on what I thought to be true and what made sense to me. So marancha, for example, this is how they describe your marancha, which is a word that didn't exist before 1934. Now they say, quote, it's a term that designates a vast intervening, intervening level between the material and the spiritual. It may designate personal or impersonal realities, living or non-living energies. The warp of marancha is spiritual. It's woof, is physical. Warp and woof. Now what does that mean? Well, warp is defined as cause to become abnormal or strange or have a distorting effect. That's what warp. Warp speed. Woof is an English word that comes from the original weft, W-E-F-T, weft. And weft is as in weaving cross threads on a loom over and under other threads. The warp thus has passed through it to make cloth. So the woof. Uh, weaving cross threads on a loom and then warp passes through it. So it's almost like two kinds of different levels of reality interchanging with each other, the physical and then this marancha. 
So as defined, the authors describe Maracha as a kind of energy that waves within the physical, but also adding to it, giving a substance of a different nature, an, an adjusted, abnormal or strange nature. Okay, so you ask yourself, is that possible? Well, the answer is yes, it is possible that something like Marantia could exist that would not violate the laws of physics, but would be considered a form of energy we may not be able to perceive because we are outside of the Marantia state. We are told that the Marantia state is our next level of life with Marantia energy containing exactly the double normal energy uh, the double the normal elements of physical matter. Uh, from 48, section 1, uh, paragraph 3. Worlds not only abound in heavy metals and crystals having 100 physical elements, but likewise have exactly 100 forms of a unique energy organization called Marantia material. The master physical controllers and the Marantia power supervisors are able so to modify the revolutions of a primary of the primary units of matter and at the same time so to transform these associations of energy as to create this new substance. The authors also provide a direct reference to a biblical passage where Paul the Apostle describes heaven and angels from Hebrews 10.34 where Paul writes, For yea had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods knowing in yourself that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. And so that it makes this reference in paper 48, Paul learned of the existence of the Marantia worlds and of the reality of Marantia materials, for he wrote, quote, they have in heaven a better and more enduring substance. And these Marantia materials are real, literal, even as and the city which has its foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And each of these marvelous spheres is a, quote, a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Uh, so pretty, I think, uh, is it conclusive? Uh, not really, but it feels right. I mean, it feels like, you know, there would be some plausibility for Marantia. Okay, so moving on. So here's another kind of interesting example of something that's in the Arantia book uh, that in 1934, when the book was written, 41, when it was plated, and then 55, published. So for paper 64, they talk about the Neanderthalers and how they were excellent fighters, and they traveled extensively. They gradually spread from the highland centers in northwest India to France on the west, China on the east, and even down into northern Africa. They dominated the world for almost half a million years until the times of the migration of the evolutionary races of color. From paper 64, section 4, paragraph 2, 800,000 years ago, game was abundant. Many species of deer, as well as elephants and hippopotamuses, roamed over Europe. Cattle were plentiful. Horses and wolves were everywhere. The Neanderthalers were great hunters, and the tribes of France were the first to adopt the practice of giving the most successful hunters the choice of women for wives. The reindeer was highly useful to these Neanderthal people, serving as food, clothing, and for tools, since they made various uses of the horns and bones. They had little culture, but they greatly improved the work in flint. Large flints attached to wooden handles came back into use 
and served as axes and picks. So that was penned in 1934. So in 2003, June, Smithsonian Magazine reveals new discoveries of Neanderthal artifacts in France and parts of Southern Europe. So here's a quote from the person who wrote the article for Smithsonian, Joe Alpert. Quote, For a long time, paleontologists had viewed Neanderthals as too dull and too clumsy to use efficient tools, never mind that they could organize a hunt and divvy up game. Recent studies suggest they were imaginative enough to carve artful artifacts and perhaps clever enough to invent a language. Albert continues, researchers now believe because of new discoveries they were highly intelligent, able to adapt to a wide variety of ecological zones, and capable of developing high, highly functional tools to help them do so. They were quite accomplished. Albert goes on to say, other tools found would have been hafted or set in wooden handles. Recovered stone tools typically fashioned from near, nearby sources of flint or quartz, and that Neanderthal groups mingled and exchanged mates. Such interactions may have been necessary for survival. Okay, so isn't that interesting? Seven decades later, uh, new discoveries confirm basically the same thing that the Urantia book states in 34. So that's foreknowledge, pre-knowledge, what you want to call it. Okay, so then we have one more. The Star of Bethlehem. So it's the season. Let's talk about that. The UB states that the legend of the Magi who came seeking the boy king is partly based on truth, such as the wise men were from Persia, and they had given, been given a vision that a child of promise was to be born somewhere in New Jerusalem. And uh, the story of Herod killing all the boys under two, which is in the Bible, is true. Which is a sad, sad event. So here's how they explain the, the story of the legend. Uh, the beautiful legend of the Star of Bethlehem originated in this way. Jesus was born on August 21st at noon, 7 B.C. On May 29th, 7 B.C., there occurred an extraordinary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces. And it is a remarkable astronomic fact that similar conjunctions occurred on September 29th and December 5th of the same year. And upon the basis of these extraordinary but wholly natural events, the well-meaning zealots of the succeeding generations constructed the appealing legend of the Star of Bethlehem. So I'll just quickly make the point that I have, uh, I have done the research on those dates of those stars, and it is conclusive that, that uh, it happened that way, that there were, in fact, three conjunctions in, in, on exactly those dates, by the way. And, uh, and that's interesting because it's not really noted in any astronomical literature. It's not as if you can read up on, oh, this amazing conjunction, conjunction that took place. The only time I've ever seen any reference to it is maybe on shows they have on History Channel where they're talking about, you know, the Star of Bethlehem. And, but they usually think it might be a comet or something. Nobody's actually picked those dates specific as the Arantia book has. And because of that, I think the Arantia book is actually revelatory. 
because it's specific to the day going back to, and taking into account the the transition from the Julian calendar was was usually off by a quarter of a day because they didn't factor in they didn't factor in the quarter day the Gregorian calendar did so if you go count backwards and you include that that adjustment then Jesus was in fact based on the date born in 7 BC and there are speculation that Jesus was also born in fall because that's when you had to register and pay your taxes, which is the story of Joseph and Mary heading to Jerusalem. And that's why they had Jesus in Bethlehem. They were traveling. So anyway, what can we extrapolate from this is that, uh, you know, again, it's, it's revelatory. So those are just three basic things that I have, I, I use as examples, uh, you know, as vindicators, authenticators, validity, establishers, whatever you want to call it. But to me, they, they tell me that the Urantia book is, in fact, what it claims to be. So a gentleman by the name of Fred Harris, I'm going to close with this, has made a modest proposal. And if you get email from the Urantia Book Fellowship, uh, you'll see this in your inbox probably. It's by Fred Harris. Uh, he lives in beautiful Quincy, Florida. I've been there. It's a beautiful town. Just beautiful. It's off the I-10, a stretch, uh, just on the northern panhandle. And if you ever get a chance, they have great fishing. They have a great festival not far from there. And it's just what, you know, if you have a yearning for small towns, Quincy's a beautiful place. Anyway, so he decides that he, he pins this modest proposal. And he's talking about, you know, how do we move the Arantia book forward? What's the best way long term for this book to really kick in and have an influence? And he says the thing that we should do is become a member of a church. Go to a couple of different churches, listen to the preacher, try to find one that's most in line with some of the basic concepts of the Arantia book, and then continue going. And you'll find that people will approach you as they do in church. I'm just summarizing because we've gone beyond our time. And uh, he says, once is, is what he says. He says, once you show yourself to be friendly and a part of that church community, and your ability to influence people will be expanded. Plus, you will find yourself in a spiritual community. The proposal does not require a large capital investment, uh, and it gives you an opportunity to become involved and become part of the church and, and to perhaps share the good news of the Arantia Book teachings in a way that allows you to integrate, them, uh, in, integrate with, with other people. Uh, and, but he writes, and this is an interesting uh, section, quote, from paper 170, section 5, paragraph 21, where the Arantia book says that this is the best method of trying, instead of trying to establish a movement or try to establish yet another ism, Urantiaism or whatever, uh, you know, we're, not, we're never going to get away from the fact that the Urantia book is connected to Christ because of the fact that the last 700 papers or pages are dedicated to, G to Jesus. But it says the Christian church is only the, in the larval stage of the thwarted spiritual kingdom, which, it will, which will carry it through this material age and over into a more spiritual dispensation where the master's teachings may enjoy a fuller opportunity for development 
Thus does the so-called Christian church become the cocoon in which the kingdom of Jesus' concepts now slumbers. And again, that's from paper 170. So I, I'm thinking about it, and I'm saying, you know, maybe maybe he's right. Uh, if, if Christianity is still in its larval stage and it hasn't reached its potential, despite the fact that there are dwindling numbers of Christians, maybe the Urantia book is what's necessary to infuse you know, the, the new generation of Christians. You know, one thing that I have learned in my business is that there are a lot of younger, very determined conservatives, uh, while a lot of them are, are sort of a new brand. Of, it's almost like evangelical in many ways. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't necessarily, they, they like the principles, but they're open to new ideas. And they're not so stuck and the traditional religious view. So I think what Fred is saying here has so much merit that instead of trying to create a secondary or parallel belief system that runs alongside of Christianity because we share so much, we also share a lot with Mormonism. Uh, but even more and above all of that, your answer book is not a religion. It was never given to us, I don't think, to, to me the emphasis is on the social growth. Uh, it's explaining to us what the kingdom is. You know, Jesus introduced us to the concept of the kingdom, and now we're expanding that kingdom, and the Urantia book explains what that kingdom is comprised of. And so it's not borrowing from the Old Testament. It's not borrowing from the New Testament. It's explaining the Old Testament. It's ex it's expatiating on the New Testament, minus all of the cultural what I call ornaments that have been attached to religion since the beginning of time. So we'll leave it there. And I, I'm so thankful and grateful. Good job, Fred. If anybody knows him, you know, let him know. He got a, a cool spot on the, uh, the Arantia radio podcast. So we'll exit with more of this wonderful piece of music and we'll see you have a great holiday season. If I don't talk to you, and thanks for stopping by. Don't forget, you can always email me, Radio at gmail.com. God bless, and thanks again. <laughs>